Hello everyone, I am Esra and this is Critical Minds. Welcome to the first episode of the show. Well, I am welcoming an imaginary audience. It might as well be only me. Uh, it is still better to verbalize than keeping everything to myself, right? Um, I will share what I have read and have been reading in this show. Um, most of the sharing will circle around interdisciplinary research I have been doing, which is drawing threads from political theory, sociology of politics, law and society, gender-based violence, and so on and so forth. Um, see, interdisciplinary, I know. But in my defense, as you dig more into scholarship, you recognize the necessity of such work. If we take, for example, one discipline into account and disregard the intersections with other, with other disciplines, you immediately limit the scope and narrow the perspective of your research, which will not be the most helpful methodology in understanding the world we live in, right? As we dig deeper and deeper, we see that everything is connected. That's why interdisciplinary research is in my opinion, um, getting more and more um, important. In North America, institutionalized, I hate that word, institutionalized knowledge is still very much established on Eurocentric epistemologies. Sorry, there's a truck passing by. In other words, it is still the Eurocentric hierarchies of knowledge and knowledge production categorizing who is to produce and share knowledge and the types of knowledge accepted as quote-unquote knowledge. So what the legitimate knowledge is determined by the criteria of Eurocentric hierarchies of knowledge, right? As an example of this would be disregarding oral histories or storytelling as forms of legitimate knowledge production. And I want to give another example that I uh, have witnessed. So we were doing a project with uh, indigenous communities and we applied for an external funding. And, you know, when you do that, they ask a lot of reports and other stuff to showcase, quote unquote, that, uh, that you use the money in a way they aimed, uh, they aimed uh, that the money would be spent. So in one of those projects, uh, it was about transmitting culture from elders to indigenous youth in care. And thinking of reporting, uh, it was sort of icky and disturbing that I need to document these gatherings and happenings. So in my conversation with one of the elders, I, I loved their perspective on documenting and archiving what we were doing and they say they said uh, that this is my archive pointing at one of the uh, youth uh, participants and I love this and it was literally eye-opening to eye-opening to see that even though we are working with communities who are most harmed by these Eurocentric uh, forms of knowledge production, we can still find ways to deconstruct those expectations, right? And only w that one single sentence, here is my archive, here is my document to show uh, the research we have done. 
to show the activities we have done. It's a living archive, right? And that person will grow to be an elder themselves and they will transmit their knowledge to the next generation. Versus taking photographs, writing documents, publishing books and articles that only other academics will read will not have that uh, impact in the future, right? So that's an example of how academia is still based on Eurocentric forms of uh, knowledge production. Okay, um, well, this is why this show exists. Here we are to disturb this hierarchy. Hence the name of the show, right? Critical Minds. Uh, so you will notice as we move forward that majority of the scholarship I will be sharing challenges the dominant structures of knowledge production and pushes against extractive research practices that are harming communities such as Indigenous and First Nations communities of Canada and all around the world in general. Um, so as you notice by now, I tend to drift away and get lost in trains of thought quickly. Uh, so going back to the point about the types of works I'll be sharing, I have no intention to limit this show to my research questions only. I have many other interests and I am a sucker for <laughs> learning. Um, looking down um, here, I see around 25 books sitting next to my feet uh, right now. They're spanning from art history to mental health to my research questions and so on and so forth. This is to say that you can anticipate to hear about a variety of topics instead of just my research topic. Okay, back to the today's episode after that long introduction, but I just want to uh, set the mood and lay out the ground uh, for this show. We need to move backward in order to move forward. That's another word I loved uh, when I heard that uh, from Robin Maynard, a black scholar, and uh, Leanne Simpson. Uh, so this idea of moving backward in order to move forward draws our attention to the necessity of uh, going back to the roots of the problem instead of just focusing on the current moment. Because if we disregard what has happened in history, then our analysis, our understanding of the current uh, problems will be, uh, will be missing a lot, to say the least. For instance, uh, looking at the industrial prison complex and the prison system and the ways marginalized communities are disproportionately being incarcerated requires a historical understanding of, of how the prisons have been established, right? And why uh, black people and other marginalized communities are disproportionately impacted by that. So we need to look into the slavery and we need to look go back into the Jim Crow laws and other uh, other periods in history that shaped uh, industrial uh, prison industrial complex um, that's another uh, example for why we need to go go back to move forward so in other words I need to share from my previous readings so that we can build on one another and that the show is more cohesive uh, to the audience. So it makes more sense. I haven't decided yet, but I might divide this into little chunks of um, 
let's say topic about um, sexual assault then we'll have a couple of episodes on that and then another topic about uh, gendered violence uh, so I haven't decided on that yet but I'm trying to think of from the perspective of the audience in what order would it make sense to the, the audience so I'm not sure but I'm I'm thinking about that so last semester I had the opportunity to teach a class on law and society in this class, we looked into the interactions between the two and how they impact and reform each other, such as the changes and amendments to the law uh, by demand, uh, a common demand that social groups gather under, or social movements and uh, the changes made by the uh, government, such as the latest uh, bill that gives, that aims to give the private uh, institutions to practice uh, medical procedures in Ontario. And um, so those latter two, the social movements and governance are also part of my research. Maybe you will find them more relatable to our everyday life in the wake of decline in democracy all around the world and the way this legal landscape has been ever evolving has been in an ever evolving process to give you a glimpse of upcoming episodes rooted in this class we will talk about law as a gendered concept racial effects and intersectionality in the law colonial effects in the law gendered colonial violence race and policing reproductive rights uh, what's been happening in canada after the overturn of roe v wade Sex work laws, that's been recently contested, um, sexual assault and the definition of consent and the multiple amendments happened, uh, made to the consent, or um, the other topic that was a favorite of students is BDSM and the rough sex defense. That's been on the rise after the, after the Fifty Shades of movie came out. And lastly, the defense of provocation, which is another super interesting topic. Before we dive into particular topics though, it will be helpful to lay the ground about how we studied law. We took a socio-legal perspective in our class. It is the interactions between law and society. That's to say we are not going to be discussing the formal law, such as the corporate law or the property law, etc. We will be looking into some of the amendments to the law or the offered bills and a couple of case studies as examples. So the first source, um, if you remember from the intro, uh, I will be having these sources uh, either in, in book format or journal articles or uh, op-eds. I'll be commenting on those and providing a critical analysis from my perspective, of course. And the first of which will be Elizabeth Comack's book called Locating Law race, class, gender, sexuality connections. So this book is the first source that we will talk about today. I hope you enjoy the show. Okay, let's start talking about Comac's book. The book, uh, again, just to remind you, titled Locating Law, and I have the third edition in my hand. Um, so this book, the reason I chose this book for my class and for uh, to start reading about the law and uh, socio-legal studies is because 
not only this is a recent uh, book, but also it covers a variety of topics pertaining to the law, uh, especially from the sociological perspective. Some of the titles, uh, if I may add, um, the book starts with theoretical approaches to law and then a discussion on the race and law, class interests, uh, gender and sexuality in the law, family law, um, governing obscenity and indecency in Canada, and so on. Uh, so the recentness of the book is um, is very useful for researchers like myself, because uh, then you can easily get a crash course on what's been discussed on this topic. For instance, in the theoretical approaches part, uh, there's a sort of a survey of what's been discussed in terms of the legality, legal reasoning, and the same standard and the, the concept of reasonable man. So instead of going back to all of those sources, which I would do if they were my main focus, I can get a sense of what's been discussed up to now by reading this book. And it's uh, if anyone in my audience is interested in doing um, research, I, I would recommend uh, taking this route uh, by first starting from the very uh, recent works uh, written by um, senior scholars so that we can see uh, get a snapshot of the big picture and then decide which parts we want to dive into. Okay. Uh, so there is so much to discuss with this book and I cannot summarize the whole book, obviously, first of all, because of the copyright issues. <laughs> and also it would take hours and hours and hours because each chapter uh, is a whole discussion uh, in and of itself. Um, what I'm going to do is I will um, talk a little bit about the foundations, right? Because as I said earlier, uh, we will look into specific topics uh, for which we need to lay the ground first, how we understand law and uh, what perspectives we have, I, me and my students had. So this book brings us questions uh, of the definition of law. Some of the questions thrown, uh, thrown out there are, what is law? Uh, what is justice? And who defines law? Who defines what is just, what is not? Who is the subject of the law, uh, etc. Um, so if you think of the definition of justice, um, I think the oldest, oldest reading we could go back to is Plato's Republic. One of the characters uh, in Plato's Republic defines justice as, and I quote, Justice is the interest of the stronger and lies in conformity with laws laid down by the sovereign in his own good. This quote tells us that justice is defined by whoever holds the power and it's in their interest and it's, uh, it's at their disposal. It is there to serve their interest, right? So just from the get-go, we understand that Whoever holds the power in society uh, can write, shape, reform the law, working best to their interest, right? So this is automatically bringing up a lot of issues, racial issues, class issues, gender issues. 
So the law is premised on this idea, on this idea of a reasonable man, uh, who is the subject of the law, and that is male. Recently, this language has changed to reasonable person. For so long, it was reasonable man. But when you look at uh, look into this concept, who the reasonable man is, or what is defined as reasonable of men, uh, you see a very Eurocentric conception of a middle class white man. Um, this man is the man who have mental capacities, who is quote unquote reasonable, uh, by scientific definition again but we see those definitions are ever evolving and changing over times right uh for instance back in the 70s uh if you were an alcoholic you wouldn't be considered a reasonable man you would be actually considered mentally unfit um probably would be subjected to uh sexual sterilization because back then they they believed scientists it wasn't a superstition scientists laid out that those who have uh, some features are likely to be criminals uh, and their offsprings will be criminals too therefore we need to limit um, limit the breeding of those uh, undesired genes and some of those undesired genes were consuming alcohol um stealing um consuming alcohol, stealing, um, having any sort of mental illness. All of these were based on what was defined as mental illness or as being alcoholic back then, right? So these are all outside the realm of reasonable men. So when you uh, go to a courtroom during the trial of, uh, let's say, homicide or an assault, uh, the question is what would a reasonable man do in this situation in order to answer this question you need to have a basis uh, to compare uh, the subject against right so you need to have an abstract personhood who you assume would behave in a certain way in that particular situation so you see it's very slippery right and it changes over time but still those definitions are the definitions that can put people behind bars for life and it changes uh it changes so many things and it makes a big uh difference in people's life okay um this actually brings us to a, a really nice uh really nice connection to uh the next quote i have here from the book uh so comac says and i quote law is among other things a language a form of discourse and i will supplement this with a quote from foucault um as far as i can remember this is not a direct quote though foucault says uh michel foucault says discourse transmits power so by saying this both of the authors referring uh, to the power the law holds in in its power to define uh, and determine and categorize and classify right uh, so i'm gonna quote from another uh, author uh, lucinda filney who says and i quote 
Law is a language of power, a particularly authoritative discourse. Law can pronounce definitely what something is or is not, and how a situation or event to be understood. So, you see, in all of these uh, codes, our attention is directed towards the questions of whose definition is taken into account in writing the law. What does uh, a definition do? What does the definition uh, include or leave out? Who is being left out? Who is being marginalized? Uh, who is marginalizing who? Or whose truth the law represent? And that brings to uh, the question uh, of representation and the definition in the law. These are very uh, critical points, even though this sounds like a really simple discussion, but this is what the law is established on, right? Due to this um, understanding of seeing the law uh, above and beyond of all structures or the quote-unquote rule of law, we tend not to uh, go back to the roots and criticize these uh, details, but in reality, uh, changing the definition changes the whole outcome. I'm going to throw in an example here. Uh, for instance, the definition of sexual assault um, was penetration of a penis to a vagina. So the sexual assault um, by other means were not categorized as sexual assault. And you can see how much can uh, get under the radar uh, because of that definition, right? Um, or another example I could give you is uh, rape or sexual assault against women uh, were considered a crime against society, a crime against family, a crime against um, honor or, an, uh, yeah, so this, uh, I have these different definitions in mind because it changes from um, country to country. So it was not considered a crime against the individual, but against family, against society, against moral values. You see the agency of woman is being completely erased from the picture. And the questions, uh, the defendant then uh, tries to answer questions about how the action is or is not harming family values, social values, etc. So you see these definitions makes a huge difference. Um, so before that, it was, um, I'm thinking of another recent example. Uh, before the changes to, uh, before the amendments made to the definition of consent in the Canadian law, uh, the consent uh, was uh, something can be assumed because uh, both parties are, you know, uh, because people were in a relationship or better they were married. So the existence uh, of consent uh, I mean, the consent was not non-existent ever because they signed up for marriage, right? So that automatically meant back then is they signed up for consent as well. 
but now the newest version, the definition of consent, and we'll we'll talk about this when it comes to that uh, episode. It has probably one of the most amended um, definition uh, in the Canadian law. Uh, now it is affirmative consent. What that means is um, consent cannot be assumed present if it's not affirmative, if it's not given throughout the course of the events, right? So that means, uh, put in simple terms, uh, someone might give consent in the beginning or they might not give consent, uh, sorry, we might not assume that they consented to entire thing throughout the course of actions, right? So that means we cannot assume that because they had given consent, that means they had consented to other things as well. So these make a huge difference in sexual assault cases because uh, the the aggressor can claim that she or he consented to having sex, but then uh, but then the survivor uh, claims that it was an assault that she didn't consent to. So it would um, it would be disregarding the testimony uh, of the survivor uh, based on that definition, right? But now, thanks to the works of scholars, uh, it that definition has changed. Now the judge uh, cannot assume that there was consent because the consent was given in the beginning. I hope it's not uh, too confusing. Okay. Let's move on. So why these definitions uh, matter is uh, also because the law is precedent. When you look at the cases, the transcripts and the judgments, you see there are uh, so many references given to other cases, the cases which involve similar features or similar courses of action uh, that the judge uh, basis his or her judgment on, right? So if there is a definition that is problematic, that is exclusionary, that is discriminating, uh, then it will keep going on in the future cases as well, because it has been established already, and the future cases will go back and look into the same uh, definition, and they will justify their judgment because it was used once, right? So that's another problem with the definition. Keeping all of these in mind, then we should ask Comac says, what role has law historically played in generating inequalities of race, class, gender, disability, and many more? Is law a part of the problem or a part of the solution in alleviating these inequalities, right? So who gets defined as criminal is ultimately a political question, Comac says. It has to do with the nature of power relationships, uh, relations in society, uh, changing the behavior of those less powerful. So by political question, uh, Comac is referring to the the ever-changing definition of criminality, right? And whoever is seen criminal is contingent upon the uh, particular uh, society and social norms. 
as I just said, first uh, theorizings of uh, law and the relationship uh, between law and society. Uh, so Comac talks about the functionalist, the liberalist, uh, Marxist, uh, etc., and the feminist approaches to law. Um, these are uh, too long, but to quickly summarize, I will read a short excerpt from here. So Comac says, theorizing on the law-society relation in sociology then has had a long and varied history dating back to the 19th century. In their efforts to locate law, different theorists have organized their work in relation to specific questions or problematics. For a functionalist such as Durkheim, the key issue was the problem of order. For Weber, it was the desire to explain the unique features of Western capitalist societies. For Marxist writers, it was the class character of law. For feminists, it was the need to attend to the issues of women's inequality and oppression. In the process of each of the approaches can be situated in terms of its acceptance or rejections of the official version of law. Up until 20th century, sorry, 21st century, uh, Comac claims that theorization of uh, law has uh, had a neutral subject in mind, uh, which is of course lacking, uh, lacking so many things, right? Um, so, and then Comac says, uh, the theorizing is, uh, has undergone revision and reformulation in response to the critiques uh, that the theorists uh, receive, has been receiving. Uh, for instance, some of those um, cont contestations uh, are the need to reconsider how race and racism are addressed within our theorizing and the challenge posed by uh, postmodern writers, which questioning the meaning, uh, right? So in terms of the race question in the law, uh, we will talk more about this when we uh, come to uh, intersectionality. But to uh, give you a glimpse of the injustices um, and the racism in the whole structure, I want to uh, read some of the examples here. Uh, Comac provides uh, uh, quite a bit of examples here. Okay, so, and this is a direct quote from the book. In November of 1990, the frozen body of a 17-year-old Neil Stonechild was discovered in a deserted area on the outskirts of Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. The young Aboriginal man had died of hypothermia. Police investigation of his death was brief and within a few weeks, the case was closed with a finding of no foul play. The in 2000, the frozen bodies of two more Aboriginal men, Rodney Nastius and Lawrence Wagner, were found on the outskirts of Saskatoon. Soon afterward, Daryl Knight told a police officer about how he had been taken out of town by two police officers and dropped off not far from where the bodies of Nastius and Wagner had been found. What came to be referred to as Starlight Tours, the police practice of detaining people, driving them to another location, and leaving them there to find their own uh, way home, generated a tidal wave of controversy. That all of these men were Aboriginal also raised in the specter of racism. 
In 2001, the two police officers involved in the Daryl Knight case were found guilty of unlawful confinement and sentenced to eight months imprisonment. In 2003, the Saskatchewan government appointed Justice D.H. Wright to head a commission of inquiry into matters relating to the death of Neil Stonechild. Under the terms of the inquiry, Commissioner Wright was prevented from assigning blame. In his report, however, the commissioner, commissioner found the testimony of Jason Roy that he had last seen his friend Neil Stonechild handcuffed in the back of a police car to be credible and corroborated by other evidence. The commissioner was also highly critical of the police investigation into Stonechild's death, characterizing it as insufficient and totally in- inadequate. The two officers who had Stonechild in their custody that night were subsequently suspended from the force. The provincial justice minister said there was not enough evidence to have them charged. By documenting the experiences of Aboriginal people and people of color in their encounters with the criminal justice system, such inquiries not only raise questions about laws claims to be impartial, neutral and objective, but also lead us to query whether the experiences and the standpoints of racialized groups have been adequately incorporated into our theorizing on the law-society relation. And COMAC supplements this um, with a discussion on uh, overrepresentation of Aboriginal people in the criminal justice system uh, relative to their numbers in general population. And I quote here, For example, while Aboriginal people make up just 3% of the Canadian adult population in 2010-11, they accounted for 27% of admissions to provincial territorial jails and 20% of admissions to federal prisons. This overrepresentation is most acute in the Prairie provinces. In Saskatchewan, Aboriginal people made up 11% of the population and 81% of provincially sentenced custody admissions since 2007. In Manitoba, Aboriginal people made up only 15% of the population, yet represented 69% of provincially sentenced custody admissions. So, Comac says, from a functionalist perspective, the approach would be asking the questions about um, about the figures and asking what is wrong with Aboriginal people as a group. And their task, the functionalist's task, task would be uh, one of developing explanations for this apparent deviance from the mainstream society. Then what would be missing in this picture is not looking at the structural problems uh, behind the big picture, right? It's easy to put the blame on the person who um, presumably committed the crime or the offenses, but what brought that person to that point is not questioned. Which also brings us to the point that uh, law is reactive it's not proactive, it's retroactive. So it, the system is triggered when something happens, when um, something has already happened, when somebody has already died, right? But it's not preventative, it's not proactive in preventing uh, that crime before it's happened. So 
if we don't ask the structural questions, then we miss the big point. We miss the big problems in the systemic, uh, in the systemic. Then we would miss looking at the problems in the structure. Um, so Comex says that a functionalist view, from a functionalist view, Aboriginal people would be seen as uh, a deviant subculture who that has failed to abide by the norms of the wider society. So, and with the implication of uh, reducing the crime rate, Aboriginal people need to be, quote-unquote, reformed and assimilated into the mainstream culture. Uh, so from the functionalist perspective, um, when you make the claim that a uh, certain group or uh, cultures are deviant, uh, that means you have, a, you have a basis in mind, you have a reference point. You have to have a definition of what culture is, right? Or what is defined as normal culture so that you can categorize the abnormal ones. You can categorize the deviant ones. So you see how the problem is uh, emerging even from that uh, very definition and how it is discriminating from the get-go. So I want to uh, read a bit more from this part that so this problem, Comac says, it has remained unquestioned until very recently. And uh, and I quote here, there is no attention, for example, to the role of the criminal justice system in the production of crime and the over-policing of Aboriginal people, nor is there any acknowledgement of the impact that colonization has had on Aboriginal communities. Um, that's that's Those are the questions we should be asking, right? So who is being uh, discriminated against who's being left out who is the subject of the law who has the right to access to uh, to institutions and to uh, citizenship who is the full citizen those are the questions we should ask right because if we if we take law at face value on the books it seems impartial neutral perfect no discrimination but in practice, we see, even though there is one law, there is the same definition uh, in every law book for a particular topic. It is applied differently. That is based on the interpretation of the judge of a specific uh, courthouse. Um, so... I guess the biggest example to this situation uh, would be the Indian Act and how it has harmed indigenous communities. Um, In the original version, um, for instance, uh, for an indigenous woman, um, they would lose their Indian status if they uh, they get married to a non-Indian person. For indigenous men, uh, they would have to give up their uh, status if they enroll to a school. These, <laughs> can you imagine this situation? You have to give up your right to your land if you want to be a part of the education system. 
then you are put in reserves outside of the cities where you have very limited access to facilities and have very little chance of getting a job, what are you supposed to do? If you want to keep your identity, then you shouldn't get education. But if you don't get education, then you won't be able to find a job. So you are pushing, I mean, the system is pushing people to do what the system defines illegal things, right? Then who is the problem here? Is it not the system itself? Not creating the opportunities for people to thrive, for people to survive, right? It's as simple as that. And for all of these reasons, we need to pay attention to who is the reference? What is the reference point that the law is taking into consideration so that we can question and challenge and contest those definitions? So it's getting pretty long. I, I didn't uh, expect to, to talk that much, but, you know, I can drift away easily. And there's a lot to say about this topic. Um, lastly, I want to touch on the uh, feminist frameworks and how feminists have been contesting uh, legal system. Um, so the first one would be the liberal feminism, right, uh, that we study as the first wave of feminism that that doesn't mean they are the f they were the first feminist feminism has long been there but because they had the means to publish their work they had the means to make their voices heard that's why they become known to be the first wave of feminists uh, which is middle class uh, white woman um, so the liberal feminists uh, liberal feminism ask for uh, equal opportunities. They challenge the law as the reference point. Uh, in other words, they ask, I want to have the same uh, as men have. I want to have the same, uh, same uh, opportunities as men have. So this means reiterating what's already been written. They want to take a place next to men which is also called sameness standard in uh, scholarship. So going as far as uh, being equal to men. And their focus uh, is on the law that is uh, ignoring the structures of women's oppression in society, uh, because if you only focus on law, then you disregard the uh, other forms of oppression. So it's not only the written law, right? And so they also uh, they also believed that gender inequality can be rectified by the implementation of appropriate policies. Uh, so that means if we have uh, whatever we want written in the law, then it will be resolved. It will uh, it will be just reflecting to real life, right? So this is uh, pretty optimistic, to say the least. But also, accepting the rules of the game. So it it is not questioning the structure itself, but saying that, okay, I know the structure, uh, I know the rules, I want to play too, and I abide by the rules. Uh, so 
as I said, liberal feminism was born out of middle class women uh, movements and their demand to work outside their home, their demand to right to vote, to education, etc. So it is middle class biased and also devaluing the work uh, done at home. And keep in mind, there was no discussion of race. And women of color, black women, have long been uh, doing, um, have long been doing um, care work for, um, and they were not the subjects included in the pictures for the liberal feminist uh, movements. Um, to simplify this with an example, liberal feminists were going out to the streets asking, demanding the right to work outside their homes uh, while they were having black maids at home serving to them. So if we are talking about right to work, then there was already uh, a group of women who, <laughs> who have been working for them. Right, so completely disregarding uh, whose right is the legitimate right, who has right to do what, which takes me back to the definition of feminism and the first way of feminism. In my opinion, the first feminist is Sojourner Truth, a black enslaved woman. Um, who contested the feminists in a, in a women's convention in the States. She said the famous speech titled Ain't I a Woman is a very powerful speech. If you are curious, I highly recommend you listen to that one. Actually, watch the performance on YouTube where she asks, I have been doing all of this work already that now you are asking to have the opportunity or the right to do. So am I not as woman as you are? Here we see not only she is questioning the definition of the subjecthood, but she is also questioning the definition of womanhood. Who is the woman, the subject here? That's what she is questioning, right? So bringing further challenged, further challenges to the system. Okay, so moving on to the second part, uh, we can look into radical feminism. So for radical feminists, the root problem of inequality and oppression is uh, is patriarchy. So that's what they say uh, is the root of the problem. So liberal feminists, by focusing on law and written forms of uh, rights, they disregarded the uh, they disregarded the other forms of oppression and gender inequality in society, right? For radical feminists, they switched uh, and they focused on uh, patriarchy, what's happening in society and how the patriarchal system in society is, uh, is oppressive to women. So they focused on the patriarch as the source of oppression. So radical feminists, as the word implies, um, 
radical ch challenging something at the root, right? A radical change, we say. Or if I may uh, quote Angela Davis, uh, where she famously says, radical means grasping things at the root. So like we discussed in the beginning, it's going back to the roots of the problem. Challenging those roots is what radical means, right? Um, so when you look at the uh, patriarchal system as the source of oppression from the radical feminist perspective, or when you look at the law and the written forms, written rights as the source of oppression, what you are missing is the intersections of oppression. Those intersections are disappearing in your perspective then. For instance, it was uh, patriarchy for radical feminists, but they, they did not focus on the racial dimension. So was it the patriarchy, uh, the same type of patriarchy for black women? Was it the same type of patriarchy for Muslim women? same type of patriarchy for women living in North America. So that was disregarded, which brings out that they had an essentialist understanding of womanhood, as if woman is a neutral category and they are all oppressed by patriarchy, by same source of oppression, uh, which is also problematic because when we talk about Crenshaw's work and intersectionality, we see how different forms of oppressions overlap and they create unique forms of uh, discrimination for individuals. In the case of black women, um, in Crenshaw's reading, we'll discuss the specific case that sparked uh, their work on intersectionality where a black woman working for an uh, automotive company uh, filed for discrimination under the discrimination laws. Um, the judge refused the first discrimination that the company was not discriminating her against her gender because they hired women, but those women were white women. And then she filed for a second uh, complaint for discrimination against race. The judge uh, returned that again, saying that the company didn't discriminate against race because they hired black men. What make black women position unique is they were sitting in the middle and they were discriminated by both. But because in law, in the discrimination law in the States, there was no such category and you were able to file a lawsuit if you fall under one of the categories. So you cannot be subjected to two types of discrimination from the perspective of discrimination laws. You can either file a lawsuit against gender discrimination or lawsuit against racism, racial discrimination. But in that example case, we see it was neither of them while it was both of them for the subject. Okay, uh, so we'll talk more about this later on. As you can tell, there's a lot to say, and I don't want to keep these uh, very long so it doesn't get boring. Um, I aim to uh, post every week, and 
uh, we'll see how it goes. But I hope that whoever is listening, uh, you enjoyed the uh, episode. And I'll talk to you next time.